Hello, you're listening to Film Greys. I'm Emmett. I'm Sam. We're from the rock and roll band Phil Graves, and we're here once again to talk about cinema. Today we're talking about Christian Petzold, one of the most esteemed 21st century European filmmakers of the sort of Berlin school, I guess, aestheticizing the Schengen. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. The Eurozone. <laughs> exactly. Um, a real movie favourite. Um, I guess that's sort of how we first came to his films. I think I first watched Phoenix a few years ago, maybe like three or four years ago, um, and I think it was released by them. There have been a few retrospectives of his work on movie. I think there's been like three. Yeah, we were trying to remember which ones. Um, they definitely had one which focused on his collaboration with the actor Nina Hoss, and they're currently doing a season which is like the ghosts of, you know, neoliberal Germany, which is, you know, a major recurrent theme in his work, which we'll get into. But there's also so much going on. Uh, really been fun to, like, go deeper into his work and watch, like, some of these... I mean, we've watched pretty much everything, I think, apart from his three episodes of a long-running police procedural in Germany and... Um, Fuck the cops. Yeah, and... Uh, I think this like sort of concept uh, trilogy called uh, Dry Laden, mm-hmm. which is like three Berlin school directors like sort of making films about like the same subjects, and it was like an anthology show. I haven't watched that, but <laughs> we've watched uh, you know I think movie program like seven or eight, including two shorts. But he's done a shitload of films. Hasn't he? he's, got... he's done. He's done Bear. Sam found this cool extension for the web browser that means you can upload your own subtitles <laughs> yes. um which has changed the game really so yeah. we've watched everything from cuba libre from 1996 and even before his early sort of student films up to uh more recent successful ones like transit the oscar nominated barbara the the pretty woman review from the <laughs> jamie jamie fisher book that circulated on twitter the other day he's hot property you know it's good to be covering such a relevant filmmaker not like this other German yeah. stuff we've been watching <laughs> um yeah i think we'll start with his new one which has it just had a when was it it's out it released? we didn't pirate anything man yeah. i know it's just come out in america right i believe so yeah but it, prem- it premiered at the berlin film festival in 2020 and it was at the london film festival i guess the same year is that a fact okay. um but yeah i when i was trying to find screenings of it um yeah it was like oh London Film Festival. I think it was playing in Sheffield. When I was looking at um, like tickets for the BFI National Lottery Day, I um, saw they, I think, had like a couple up north, but cool. Yeah, not like a mainstream cinematic release here, as far as I can tell. But it is also a new film, so maybe we'll <laughs> play better up north in a city with a less Butters River like running through it. But yeah, it's out on Curzon on demand it definitely had like a uk release in april which is such a weird film to start on or whatever because it's this is after like a really insanely consistent well no because it's not that different actually he's definitely transformed over time and i guess we'll talk about that i think one of the main like sort of breaks i mean it's worth talking about like um he was mentored by um Harren Frotke at um the german film and television school in, in berlin like during like in 89 yeah like, when it all the, came down yeah. um and the like reunification but um they collaborated on pretty much all his work all his screenplays um even if it's uncredited like talks about how they like you know 
worked through the scripts together. Perfect collaborator, really, because I guess, like, for Rocky, well, we we watched Videograms of Revolution for Film Club a few months ago now, which just, I'd never seen anything like it, really. Um, I'd really recommend that. But he's a documentarian, right? All his films are documentaries. And for a filmmaker who takes such, like, fictitious leaps and, you know, playing with genre in his films, it's such an interesting collaboration, I think. Definitely, but he died 2014. Um, 2014. So a week after the World Cup. Yeah. So since then, I guess he. I mean, he was alive like during um, the like development of Phoenix. Yeah. Um, but you know, Transit and Indina and um, Petzl's work going forward, they won't have that sort of like. I was gonna say that sort of filmmaking dialectic going on. Frotsky did help with the development of Transit as well, or I guess they'd just been thinking about it for years. He, I think, he oh. gave him the novel. Um, but then that film has a narrator, something that Petzold said, like, oh, he would never let me do this if he was still alive and, you know, (laughs) this sort of stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's definitely a departure. And Undina is, like, even more, as you said, uh, (laughs) even even more uh, sort of um, flight of, a turn to sort of fancy. But that has been a recurrent theme throughout his work. Um, I think we should get into it because... There's lots to say. Rich filmography. I think we'll get things started with Indina. I said it premiered a couple of years ago now. Oh, well, was it last year? Whatever. What does it even mean anymore? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Something we'll be um, coming back to later. Yeah. It reprises the acting duo of Franz Rogowski and Paula Beer from his previous film, Transit. In this film, Paula Beer plays the eponymous Indine named after like a sort of mythical or pseudo mythical like water nymph right yeah and that basically is what the story recreates and Franz Roboski plays like a industrial diver and they have like a weird relationship Christian Petzl said it was inspired by thinking about like tinder and how everyone's like romances are just like reduced to digital encounters now so he wanted to make something like fantastical and uh i guess real romantic or whatever great but it's also (laughs) sort of a documentary about like the architectural history of berlin being built on the the swamp definitely indina is a uh like a tour guide at this municipal museum is as i said set in berlin and very much about like the spaces of berlin like some of his other films that we'll get to Mm. and there are some great scenes where I guess sort of dependent on her mood, her interpretation of what she's describing, these like 3D models changes. But there are some great little quotes in there where she's like, you know, these like buildings, the models of them are like on loan to like a GDR, like nostalgia exhibition and stuff like that. Um, But then other times it's like very poetical. It's a bit like like, um, First Reformed in that regard or something like Mm. that almost. Mm. Um, that's yeah that's the Marquis Museum which looks great I'd look, definitely trying to visit it to be honest it looks like a fascinating place that's one of the things that like made me compare it a lot to like Wings of Desire by Vin Vendors oh, I really want to watch it um, which is as much about like sort of Berlin as a city as, as it is like a sort of fantasy mm. romance film um, but there's other ones like I guess even like the Rivette films that I really like are very grounded in like fantasy not saying it's like Game of Thrones mm. or whatever but put in like a fantastical premise in like a urban post-war environment like uh the shape of water yeah or la- lady in the water <laughs> is that the Shyamalan? yeah 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 and this film does feel like a Shyamalan film at times or whatever you um, had quite mixed feelings well you didn't really like this compared to some of his other work can we get to that it's definitely my least favorite yeah. i think but that's just that just speaks to the caliber of like all of these films to be honest it just didn't really work for me um the reason i raised it then is because 
if we think about it in terms of those sort of genre films, you were saying, again, classically off mic, how it feels less like a sort of playful engagement with um, these genres than just like a sort of participation in it. But I can't really have a problem with that, I feel. I'm just a fucking massive hypocrite because like Yellow is a sort of remake of Carnival of Souls, you know. Jericho is a remake of The Postman Always Rings Twice. A lot of them are influenced by Vertigo. Um, Apparently, um, The State I'm In, which is a really great like sort of political thriller, is influenced by Near Dark, Catherine Bigelow's like vampire film. Pre-CIA vampire film, yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) <laughs> and Cuba Libre is a remake of Detour by Edgar Ulmer, one of the best American sort of B-movies. But we'll probably talk about these films yeah. in, in due course. But yeah, the genre aspect is such an important thing. But And he always here... talks about how... Sorry, go on. But here, was that like a... Well, I was just going to say, he always talks about how like he's really into like German romanticism and this film is like, already, I guess if you're German, there's a lot more of the fairy story that is like more familiar or like innate about it. If he talks a lot about like Caspar Friedrich and like, yeah that being born out of like industrialization and stuff like this and seeing this sort of move in his filmmaking as like a second phase or like a sort of another capitulation of that is interesting. Yeah, I think it's the same thing as like the way he looks at neoliberalism as part of the modern German condition Mm -hmm. because he's just thinking about, you know, reading interviews with him over the past few weeks and watching these films like um, the fairy tales and, you know, I guess it's the Mm. It is German romanticism on, on maybe like a more like the most popular level. The fairy tales that are like part of like the geography of these cities mm. and like, you know, Germany is like an imagined place or whatever are as much a part of its like story that he's trying to like unpack as, you know, the onset of, you know, neoliberalism and, you know, the new ways of life that it dictates. Like it's the same thing. And um, it's probably quite a profound visualization of that as well. And especially by being very Hollywoody. I gotta <laughs> say I think like Franz Rogowski, who's also in A Hidden Life, and Paula Beer are like a great screen couple for the ages. And if this is a sort of like to have and have not like their sort of screen reunion. I think yeah, that it does really kind of work as like a just sort of Hollywood S film as well. I guess it's more like sort of whimsical than the sort of uh, rigorous sort of filmmaking we'd expect from out of this like sort of continental tradition, um, which does have a sort of jarring effect. For me, I got sort of swept up in it, um, and I thought like the sort of historical analysis was there enough mm-hmm. to um, you know make it quite like a rich experience. But yeah. Uh, it features the song Staying Alive <laughs> in a sort of diegetic way. And it almost in a completely diegetic way, actually. The first time um, it appears is the resuscitation scene. And then Undine is listening to it on a cassette or whatever. Because she's fallen in love. Yeah. It's funny that, you know, Petzold, he does do this often. He like, it's a quirk. He clearly just likes that song or whatever. It's like a quirk of his like filmmaking that he works in these like really bait tunes into it. But in this one... <laughs> I guess it is grounded in the fact the BPM is the same as how you resuscitate someone. So he shot all the underwater stuff first, apparently. And that, I'd like to see that, like, in the cinema, I guess. Cause I can really yeah, I guess it's a bit of, like, a first cow nighttime photography situation where... Sure. Know, or Game of Thrones battle sequence um, <laughs> where, you know... You do want to see it on a Blu-ray or whatever. really like the first underwater sequence, actually, where... As I said, he's like a diver and he like goes down to like the base of this bridge mm-hmm. and there's like graffiti that says Indina and it like has a heart and it's cool imagery. Like it's a, uh, you weren't into it. 
I don't know, because imagery is works so well in his films, even though there's so much like that is reductive about it, and it does often look like sort of films by like Michael Haneke or something. But there's actually so much in the. Yeah, it's disclosure, you know. Yeah. Imagery is not a thing in and of itself; it's what it has. Also, this like there are other interesting things about you know the image being replicated in this film, where you know these like underwater like spectral sequences mm-hmm. where he like goes back to like look at the monitor, um, and you know is different to what had been putatively perceived in the first place. Like, it's, it's all this stuff's interesting. That's but... an interesting way of him using surveillance footage compared to, like, some of his other films as well. Well, exactly, man. Uh, it's consistent. I don't know. <laughs> um, again, like, there, there are lots of parallels throughout these films because he, like, plays with the same conventions again and again. But there was a scene in this one which... Um, directly mirrors a scene in transit in quite an interesting way, especially because a lot of the scholarship about Petzold relates to, you know, how he uses space. You know, it's pretty... A lot of hotels, a lot of motorways, service stations. Exactly. Airports. Um, So here it's characters, both played by Brogowski, as it were, going to try and find someone and then finding that they've, like, disappeared. There there are new occupants in what was apparently their space. Like... Mm -hmm. You know, these things are transient and, like, un- unreal. And that, like, plays into a sort of fantastical element, even though it's, like, a, you know, commentary on, like, real transience and non-fixity in in relation to, like, personal space. Well said, Sam. Well, <laughs> but, yeah, I mean, it's interesting how a lot of the scholarship is from, I think you were saying this as well earlier. Or from when Barbara came out, pretty much. That's when the book that we read by Jamie Fraser was out and the Senses of Cinema issue, which is a fantastic collection of essays. I'd recommend to anyone. The Jamie Fisher book was a really good, yeah, sort of exegesis of all those films, actually, and really brought to bear the sort of consistent themes throughout. Um, but they are sort of self-evident <laughs> as, <laughs> as well to a certain extent, but it's it's nicely sure. written. I would say that the... Um, <laughs> the what's his name, Marco Abel stuff, mm-hmm. like, that really brought to bear the, like, sort of continental philosophical obliqueness through which these films can be analysed, um, where it's, like, the nowhere is a now here, and, like, you know... <laughs> and lots of, like, extremely sort of Heideggerian sort of frameworks for thinking about this stuff. Jamie Fish talks a lot about um, Benjamin... Um, in relation to Petzold's work, which I think is definitely very very relevant. Um, Germaine, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I think it's just mad when there's like, it just feels different, even though it's so consistent. So I think like Kislovsky, straight after he made the Three Colors trilogy, which is like, again, a point of comparison, engages with sort of national themes and like 20th century history in the same way that most of Petzold's work does. And then he does a film that like kind of feels the same, but then also has just like all these sort of, weird hollywoody fantastical elements in the uh, i'm talking about sorry the double life of veronique which is a bit again like sort of the fisher king or like has these sort of tim burton things i just never really both of those works after the decalogue and blind luck yeah i think yeah yeah yeah, yeah, like 10 years after but yeah it's just that's all it's a film for another time almost Mm -hmm. but it's definitely from right now yeah that's a glib statement although i mean something that's interesting about transit is Mm. the sort of ambiguity it's a transposition of a world war ii set novel written during world war ii as well to the modern age yeah so they don't need to like sort of rely on like sort of period sets and costumes but it obviously works in an extremely vital way when these like sort of police trucks are like rolling past and that's it and all this stuff but 
I think Transit is a fucking masterpiece, you know, and that th- I've never really seen anything that looks like that or whatever, or feels like that. It's used with such purpose, that kind of conceit of the film, shooting it just with no period detail. Yeah. Oh, sorry. Yeah. But the reason I cited that is because Indina is sort of the same. It has a sort of technological nebulousness where it's like clearly modern um, and clearly in the present, but it sort of is also timeless mm-hmm. and non-specific, even though it's so rooted in like a specific um, locale i.e. Berlin and its mythology and its like history of reunification and stuff like that but I don't know I guess that's in part why I thought it was successful because it's you know it has its cake and eats it yeah yeah exactly exactly (laughs) yeah I think as we look back I'm not entirely sure the best way there are quite distinct periods in in his oeuvre like you know, student films, which we'll talk about briefly, and lots of TV films, mm. which are sort of the... His TV films and his theatrical films, there's quite a blurred line between them. I think he made three feature-length TV films before The State I'm In, which was in 2000. And that was a cinematic release, mm-hmm. sort of limited because it was like a German art house film. But I think it's sort of a domestic success. Well, that's something to consider, though, with the subsequent ones, which were like only really seen at festivals or like on TV in Germany. Well, like. well, exactly. Then it goes back to um, something to remind me, his uh, I think the year after 2001, his first collaboration with Nina Haas, TV film. Wolfsburg, the year after, TV film. And I think a lot of these films, even the non-TV films, are part-funded by um, the, the same TV stations and like sort of funding bodies. And um, so there's a sort of, I don't know. Much maybe, like it is over here for a lot of... Well, exactly, BBC films or whatever. These are um, these are bad. <laughs> little joe yeah but this is the thing i liked about you know undino when i saw it it was like you see like 20 logos at the start and i'm like yeah <laughs> you know yeah it's a good rule often but yeah i think maybe the only real difference is that you know they're sort of letterboxed and they have a different aspect well it has it has a bearing on how easy, easy they are to watch as well which is a shame yeah well definitely and uh yeah, it's good that Mubi have put on the state I'm in, Osvitz, um, one of his student documentaries, and Sudan, and another sort of quite hard to define. It's like pictures of the old world, or whatever. Sort of Sudan? Os- oh, oh Osvitz. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, well, exactly. But Sudan is just like a sort of montage, um, and a, a sequence that sort of invokes um, the colour of pomegranates, mm. um, with the books like sort of flat. Being read by the wind. the wind, yeah, love that. Takes on a new bearing. And he he does channel influence in like, you know, he's definitely a cinephile filmmaker. You can see that in all of his stuff. I'd really like that Amrand. I can't remember who it was actually directed by. It but he's Thomas Arslan. Right. One of his sort of student contemporaries. Exactly. Um, yeah. But he worked on the sound mixing for that. And that was cool, even though it was a bit of like a iMovie photo montage, but with like extreme use of sound and like industrial drilling and yeah well exactly and Austin worked on Oswald I think as well they right. I think they basically it's the same milieu the same historical period the same motivation to go out and try and depict Berlin in that transitional period mm. of reunification uh, the vendor um, and you know those films are, are really interesting artifacts in that respect um, but they're very like rigorous like <laughs> <laughs> he's just talking about some serious shit you know i think it's something that's that i do genuinely find interesting and i've learned a lot through his filmography this sort of past few weeks about you know he's someone who his family was from the east and he was crossing the border much like barbara 
in his films and a lot of his films take place like between east and west germany and like communicate the differences or whatever but you know this is, some, this is a big concern of his films throughout including with eastwards or whatever which yeah. was an interesting interview-based documentary he was someone who was like a an eyewitness to like the berlin wall coming down they live really near it at the yeah. time and stuff like that so they're not just some shitty students <laughs> student films or whatever well exactly <laughs> um i think there's a in that sense of cinema um christian petzold dossier there's um a article uh by i think abel that talks about how those like prefigure his you know later cinematic interests and it's true i don't think you can say the same for like Sudan, but <laughs> necessarily but or it just does something different i guess that does prefigure his interest in genre filmmaking and you know mm-hmm. what you can achieve with that um i think one thing that i'd just like to note at this point um, before we maybe move on to thinking about some of his old films in greater detail, mm-hmm. is um, the as well as collaborating with the same actors frequently, Nina Hoss in like six or seven films, Rogowski and Beer in in two consecutive new films sequence, now. Yeah. Um, that you know, there are other ones that we'll identify as we go. Also, he's worked with the same cinematographer Hans Fromm um, since I think his first TV film uh, pilots. Um, in 1995, and the same editor, um, Bettina Berla, for the same... And what a know. distinctive style they have like brought together over the course of like 20 years. Exactly. I think it's definitely worth giving these people credit for their, you know, what they have exactly achieved. I mean, this together. is, you know, you see him like a Ford or like a Sternberg or whatever, he mm. has real distinct working relationships with a bunch of interesting artists in their own right, or whatever, including the actors. Having established something of a false dichotomy between Petzold's TV and theatrical work, we are now going to talk about what was actually a TV film, but then it actually wasn't because it was also his graduation film. Is it? Um, Yeah, Pilots from 1995. It's like 75 minutes or something like that. And it's about like sort of aging itinerant makeup saleswoman who junior the like sort of exec level, you know, management guy, uh, like boss's son, like rolls through and like sets his like really impossible sales target and pairs her with his like much younger wife or fiance. I can't remember to like sort of like ghost her and like sort of like monitor her or sort of like learn from her it's sort of ambiguous he's just like she's going with you they have like a sort of agonistic relationship where it's like you know there's quite a lot of tension there as the film develops their mutual condition as like women in like a capitalist society brings them together and then it has like a sort of genre turn which is like a recurrent theme in like all of these early films. They're basically all about like petty criminals yeah. trying to function in like a neoliberal world. Um, I haven't seen this one, but you're making it sound a like classic Petzold, yeah. which I guess is instructive, <laughs> but b a bit like Tony Erdman or you know other sort of Berlin school films that have like caught on recently, like Western. Both films I absolutely loved, but, and there was. That's really what Petzl films are like. You just get the siren going past. But yeah, both those films have a remarkable amount of time spent about sort of um, professional relationships 
and managerial relationships or whatever and it can be such a boring thing to look at I think especially when it's in an office which is a big thing when it comes to like Yella as well but he's the poet of that you know yeah I mean he does it in a really wild way some of the dialogue in his third TV film The Sex Thief which is about a woman um, who like sort of robs men in a hotel sort of honey traps them to like sort of putatively pay for her sister's studies that's right that has about 10 minutes of it that's just a recreation of documentary footage out of one of the Faroqui films right that's With exactly a woman it trying to negotiate her salary and she doesn't get the job because she didn't go for a commission-based salary she stated what she wanted up front that's exactly it and in yellow um in, and this is like is a hitchcock about, film yeah 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 it's a mad thing to have done as a way of sort of like you know don't even know what that is like satirizing reality right. like right again like people if we think of him as like a sort of Benjaminian filmmaker, this is like a constellation of, uh, you know, like an accruement of like the detritus of, you know, film culture. Yeah, and putting the, the protagonist as a sort of a system of accumulation or whatever. Yeah, that, I guess that's what all of these early films sort of amount to. Um, let's talk about Cuba Libre. Loved it. And you watched Detour this week as well, right? Well, exactly. After... We agreed neither of us would watch Carnival of Souls on which Yeller is based, but... I'm making you watch it next Halloween. <laughs> yeah. um, but after watching Cube Libre, I was intrigued about what Petzold actually took from mm. its source material, Detour, the Edgar G. Elmer film from 45. And yeah, some scenes are just like direct lifts. Some of the most outlandish stuff is lifted. I'm the s- most outlandish scene in Detour is not lifted. <laughs> I'm sad that they didn't manage to get the enormous coffee cup in from that film. Detour is a film where they like, you know, they clearly shot it for like a very small budget. So they just have like a bit of smoke and like a fake street sign. And suddenly like the same street is like LA and then New York mm. or whatever. But that has insane casting and Savage in that film is like totally unique, mm. unforgettable. Mm. And I'm surprised that he did that element of the film justice by casting Catherine Fleming in the, in the same role. I thought she was really fantastic. But yeah, almost such an interesting one because he was one of those German filmmakers who emigrated in like 1931. He made People on Sunday, which is like a sort of docufiction, very like breakthrough, like very groundbreaking film, which also Seod Mack and Billy Wilder were all working on. And then, yeah, made these B-movies that have this sort of unreal mm. dreamlike quality to them through like stripping back filmmaking as much as possible and like reducing it to its bare elements which you could say is what Cuba Libre certainly responds to you know you have loads of scenes that take place in the same location very simple framing um and like there's about four or five characters in the whole movie and the main characters as you said Catherine Fleming plays um this like young woman Tina Tina. and Ricky Muller is that Mm -hmm. his name from um, Vin Diesel's Triple X film, also featuring Ramstein. It's, it's um, they have a sort of like love. I bet Petzold loves that film. <laughs> they have a sort of lovers on the bridge sort yeah. of um, dynamic of just being like they're, sort homeless, of, right. they're homeless and like, heaven knows what sort of vibe yeah, yeah. And he's meant to have like robbed her in the past and. Um, basically led to her like present condition and um it's a pretty miserable story of like you know dreaming of escaping and it just basically being unrealizable on the terms of modern society and capital there's one line so they're talking about moving to cuba the whole the whole film or whatever i guess isn't an instructive time to bring up the fact that like 
the way he thinks about you know east germany as like an alternative to fascism and mm. capital in the 20th century and as like a failure there's a line where she says like oh i chose to learn english as opposed to spanish because i assumed like america would have taken over cuba by the time i got there and it is like this sort of imagined like a lost future or whatever to talk in another <laughs> you know. yeah well definitely i mean if we're talking about sort of frameworks through which to understand these characters i mean the classic one for these pets old ones and the one that this movie retrospective is using is just of them being like sort of ghostly presences that are sort of floating through post-modernity with like is the, you know is the burial of um, german cinema this would have been a great one to watch on there it's a shame that they shame. didn't get it but also, i'm really glad we managed to watch it handbags and fire extinguishers most cinematic weapons man like Big honestly time. you know that's just a great thing to see <laughs> this one felt a lot like a uh, piero lefou to me or whatever though, mm. because of how irrational and abrupt a lot of the sort of plot mechanics would happen and the fact that it took place in all these sort of seaside, you know, very casual crossing of borders and like getting away from the police mm. or whatever. I thought even the the sort of surprise pivot in this film was even better than the bit in Detour that's the same sequence where there's like someone has a heart attack when they're driving. Mm. Just so convincingly rendered, I think, because I'd seen so many of Petzold's films before. Also, the editing in this film was just perfect throughout, like for a TV movie, especially like I think anyone would get a lot out of this film, whether you'd seen Detour or not. Whether you see any other Christian Petzold films, it's just a cool... Film. Yeah, definitely. I think this one's a strong starting place if you're interested in uh, getting involved with his work. I think maybe we can move on to the, the state I'm in, which is equally a really good starting place. And I think, like, how this movie retrospective is framing, like, the sort of genealogy of his career um, as... Well, I mean, it's his first, like, theatrical feature film. Mm. But, um, you know, really a continuation of the sort of themes and style that we see in um those first three films it's it's the big schengen one you know portugal to france bang yeah exactly also a film like very much so couched in um the memory of like sort of left-wing terrorists in in germany mm -hmm. by the Meinhof, like the the raf uh, the raf yeah <laughs> which is such an interesting premise for a film especially for a film that's like mostly about their child who mm. was never a part of that or whatever but mm. just sort of exists in this sort of like she's constantly learning the language for the next country that their family's going to escape to or whatever yeah. and they have such a precarious existence yeah i mean it's the perfect word to describe it i guess it's hand that aspect of it um which would be very self-evident to german audiences is like very elliptical mm. in it you know they're never like explicitly identified with anything but they're condition is like such that it can only be that really mm. and I, I guess it is sort of an intergenerational drama which is the first film of his to feature this actress julia hummer who's also in ghosts she's fantastic i think yeah the mum is also in transit she makes an awesome cameo in transit yeah exactly as the woman with the dogs it's also his first film to feature one of these hilarious um he can't really portray sex or whatever but about <laughs> half of these films have like sort of forgetting Sarah Marshall style like really theatrical really screamy sex scene going on in another room and you're just looking at someone like having to put up with listening to it or whatever <laughs> happens all the time but I can see why this film was successful as well on an international stage because it's just entertaining it feels a lot like a lot of these other sort of normal European thrillers something like tell no one or something that I would go and see when I was a teenager pretty good just like adaptation 
Um, yeah, I mean, it's a really entertaining thriller. Um, mm. And yeah, I guess that's sort of like, I think I used the word like elliptical already, but like, you know, it does have a sort of like mysterious or like disorientating quality. And yeah, that's p- entirely born of like the psychologies of the characters and like how they're depicted in the world. Uh, the colour palette is like really classic, four pets old. And yeah, it just has like all of these classic themes of, yeah, just like people being like, fucked basically um and just like extremely marginal on the move but going nowhere certainly shares with Rykart, i guess if you go back to our old episode but yeah i think there are stylistic similarities as well for sure i guess it's just that like bretonian maybe is the word that's exactly what it is isn't it because you you're looking at you know whole people like doing gestured stuff and like there's such an illusion of like you don't think there's actually much to look at or whatever but Mm. everything feels so deliberate in all three of those filmmakers approach to mise-en-scene or whatever. Yeah. Even when you get the crazy ending in this film. That's very Brissonian, actually, the way that... Yeah, there's the bit at the end of La Jeanne, isn't there? Exactly, yeah, like, yeah. yeah. There is one other really fascinating thing about the state I'm in. Well, there's plenty of other fascinating things about it. But there's one bit where the daughter is just going off to like hang out by herself, like sort of Lisa Simpson trying to find a group of friends in that yeah. episode. And then she just goes to the university and... They're like, oh, you're going to the movie? And she's like, yeah, all right. And she walks in and it's Night and Fog by Alan René. Mm. Totally classic, like, groundbreaking documentary about the Holocaust. This apparently replicates the scene in Margaret von Trotter's Marianne and Gidan, right. which is also a film about leftist terrorism mm. or leftist praxis in, um, the, I guess, the 80s, like a new German cinema mm. take on the subject. Petzold has said, oh, like, I haven't seen it or whatever, but it's a strange thing to also include. Um, <laughs> but yeah, it's interesting. As like, especially we're thinking about, like, how do these films engage with history? And, like, on the most explicit level, like, this character is, like, sort of railing against a sort of didactic sort of middle-aged man who was, like, once a leftist, yeah. like, and now is just, like, a centrist in, like, a high school or whatever teaching about the holocaust she's asked a question about it and then she just like gets up and leaves mm. and there's lots of interesting writing on like what that means or whatever but not reconciled uh, well exactly for future generations mm. i've just remembered another 90s german film which this has reminded me of because it deals with a similar topic the nasty girl by michael verhoven which is about a young woman doing a history project about her local town, which has swept its Nazi past under the carpet and developed a popular myth of resistance. In The Nasty Girl, the protagonist pursues historical truth to the detriment of her and her family's social life, whereas in The State I'm In, Julia Hummer's character outright rejects historical inquiry. The one moment in The State I'm In that I'll never forget, which is again something that is very consistent throughout his whole filmography, is the bit quite early on in the film where you think they're about to get arrested when all the police vans pull up and then they just arrest all the Roma people who were just there. You know, that's crazy. And again, his treatment of like the police, they perform exactly the same function in literally every single one of his films. They just appear very surprisingly feels like they're on like a different sort of plane of existence right but like a they're like NPCs. totalizing one yeah well exactly that mm. man and yeah there's another great scene of like sort of paranoia you know these films is full of scenes of like paranoia about like getting caught by the police yeah. like i mentioned it once in transit like it's right at the beginning yeah. in that film it sort of codes like the sort of presentness of the film um and like you know the refugees in Europe and stuff like that and well, exactly. how hard a time they get 
have crossing borders like between countries in Europe at odds with the characters in the film or whatever, which is such an interesting thing to set up. But like, he actually confronts it or whatever. That's mm. like really what seems to be an impetus for like the filmmaking as opposed to just being set dressing or like a manipulative thing to... Nah, for sure. It's like the essential um, like sort of flip side of the story he's telling. You know, um, j- just while we're talking about the state I'm in, maybe we can talk about ghosts now because mm. I think sequentially it might make sense to talk about all these... There are like six Nina Hoss films after that in yeah. a row, but it's like in the middle of those. Um, but that one... Yes, Fenster. Great German word. <laughs> yeah. Um, it could literally be a sequel to The State I'm In. Yeah, definitely. So this also features Julia Hummer as like a, like early 20s woman. It's like, I think Petzold says she's doing like a one euro job. That's which right. is like a sort of state subsidized scheme to like get people doing like low skilled work, but like just be like an employment number basically. So she's like working as a sort of park cleaner and then the the film like immediately picks up where she um, meets this other young woman in the park and she's like being like sexually assaulted and it's really dread but then they bond but have a strange sort of mutually manipulative mm. relationship and there's another plot strain that sort of collides with that one um, with this like French couple where the woman is looking for her daughter who was like kidnapped when she was like three years old yeah. and she thinks that um Julia Hammer's character Nina is is her yeah some serious stuff it's it's really again a film about trauma and displacement and yeah he seemed to be thinking about unemployment a lot when he made it in that film and those like one euro jobs that you're talking about mm. it's mad to me to think that like Julia Hammer's character is probably she well, she was the same age when she shot this film as like Paula Bear was when making Undino, and she's like mm. you know, a tour guide or whatever. And that's those are the only two films that we have that are set in Berlin. Mm. And much Phoenix. of Cuba Libre is set in Berlin as well. Sure, but it's out in the in the airport. Yeah, okay. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Um, but like urban Berlin or whatever, like visualizing like Potsdamer Platz and like like, mm. like recognizable parts of Berlin or whatever. And even that tells a story mm. in those fifteen years between those two films. This sort of reminds me of Out in Dean, actually, um, where, you know, the river plays like a sort of mythological part in, you know, Berlin's history. Here, there's like a very clear dichotomy, I guess, between like the park and like the nature space and the city, Potsdamer Platz, you know, other like sort of um, historically, quote marks, inscribed places, whereas this is more like sort of hard to put into words but like she starts and ends in the same place in the nature space it has more of a fairy tale structure much like indina than some of his other ones even though it's dealing with a lot of the same themes of like shifting identity like trauma loss and how people relate to places and shit this film and something to remind me which we're going to talk about soon they're like really well structured as well where you have two like quite distinct things going on or whatever and then they're really cleverly brought together which is something i really rate i think that's a real hallmark of his work actually it feels like there's and sometimes it comes really quite late um mm. but you know oh transit it's not, is like the last 20 minutes of yeah the film. yeah but it's not sort of ex nihilo it works in relation to the film like you don't feel like he's doing it for the sake of it or whatever it's just like how narrative disclosure works in these films but that's something that's way more televisual than most cinema filmmakers would usually do i would argue Mm. because you see those kind of plot lines unfolding on tv and they don't necessarily need to be like related to each other for a lot more of your time Mm. just interesting but i guess that's just the way he treats storytelling as well and treats 
these people's lives under I don't know, John Claude Juncker or whatever. Yeah, in the state that they're in. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. I just don't understand what the actual ghost trilogy is. Have you encountered this? How like there's disagreements about what this trilogy is. Okay, so I think. <laughs> you know what I'm talking about? I think it is the state I'm in. Yeah. Ghosts and yellow. So not something to remind me. Because I think he said there was something to remind me. People don't agree. Yeah, but I mean, Wolfsburg is between all of these as well. Like, yeah, that's what's um, I think it's all about like sort of retroactive inscription of like the work, you know. It's just some um, journalist do or whatever. Yeah. Uh, you know, I think he's described uh, Barbara Phoenix in transit as like love in times of political oppression trilogy or so, you sure. know, and it's like... And now he's doing okay, Fiddle like, Tale trilogy. Fine, you can reinscribe them. Yeah. But yeah, I guess I, I don't actually know what the Ghost Trilogy is because there are literally nine films or more that fit within that category. <laughs> We're now going to introduce, I guess, what is the the main sort of part of his filmography, which is these six films that he made starring Nina Hoss, who was a, a real like, upcoming German actor at the time or whatever, who'd already been like, you know, had a lot of industry. Is that right? I thought she was, he, quite famous. She was relatively, not plucked from obscurity, but I think she was definitely like quite fresh faced at the time mm. that she starred in this first one and he'd seen her in like a play or something. Is that right? Something? I don't know. Um, but <laughs> okay, well, forget, forget all that. Um, yeah, these collaborations with Nina Hoss, who prior to watching these, I only really knew from this weird uh, Manic Street Preachers song, Oi Hopa Get Dush Mish, from their 2014 record Futurology. It's got uh, similar lyrical concerns to these films, but at the end of the day, it's kind of like Muse or something. I don't think you'd like it, Sam. But just a fantastic actor. A real, I mean, I mentioned like Sternberg and Dietrich before or whatever, in just the variety of roles and like characters it's a true partnership you know it's such an insane sequence of films i guess we're starting with something to remind me which was a, a tv film only a tv film because he insisted upon using the burt Bacharach song always something there to remind me great um, <laughs> which would have cost like three hundred thousand euros to license for a film but with tv they could get away with it but in germany it's called dead man yeah like the jarmusch yeah, um, slightly reconfigures how you would think of the film, I think. And this is definitely a film where before you watched it, I was like, don't read about it. Because, like, you know, we've alluded to the fact that he introduces these sort of dynamic shifts, plot shifts in his in his films. And this is one that, like, really takes shape in an intriguing way, I think. Um, Nina Hoss plays, like, a very manipulative character. But it's also... A real promising young woman. Yeah, well, that's exactly... That, that's like a real key reference. Just when I thought I was allowed to forget about that film, never have to think about it again. Yeah. It's a very similar premise, actually. Um, but handled in, you know, a completely different way. A brilliant, like, sort of mesmerising and very mysterious performance, which is, you know, something that is carried over in, in all of these collaborations, I think. You know, often quite, like, stoic characters, mm. but, you know, also very expressive. I mean, Hoss is so good in this film, I think. Especially it being like a sort of... Well, this is one of the films that has probably the least dialogue, I'd say. At least for like the first half of the film or whatever. It's a lot. It's very like Brian De Palma-esque. You're just listening to sort of like Bernard Herrmann strings and watching people like walk pretty slowly in like pan shots. Um, that's a lot of the film or whatever, which is again some Hitchcock shit or some... People shit. following each other. Yeah. People 
slowly. Um, yeah, these like sort of disclosures of information that are almost stumbled upon, um, but always actually quite deliberate. And you know, this is meant to be a very Machiavellian character ultimately. But she says very little until she's like making speeches or whatever. For sure, but um, again, it's all about like how like these gestures like exactly you know <laughs> exactly. Really a great performance, and yeah, watched it in quite bad quality, like a lot of these TV films, but yeah, a striking film. Again, it's a shame that the movie couldn't include this in their latest Christian Petzold retrospective. You wouldn't leave off the Blue Angel, would you? (laughs) (laughs) Um, You didn't, did you watch Wolfsburg? I didn't manage to see Wolfsburg. Wolfsburg is where um, the Volkswagen factory was. Yeah, 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 yeah. So that's why I said the net. Well. Yeah. <laughs> and it's filmed about a kid getting killed by a car. Yeah, exactly. So it's all, this is the first of two collaborations um, or two pairings of Nina Hoss with uh, the actor Benno Furman. Um, he plays a sort of car dealership guy in Wolfsburg, as you said, the Nazi city founded for the production of Volkswagen cars and the instruments of war. He's like driving his Ford car through mm. the uh, sort of flat German landscape, and you can like see the factory in the background stuff. Kills this kid, or like runs over this kid, and like doesn't stop to assist him, uh, but then starts to feel guilty about it. Um, his marriage is deteriorating, so he's like sort of like in sort of transient state, I guess. Um, he starts to feel guilty about it, and like goes to the hospital where Nina Hoss, the mother, um, is. They, they is he kid in a car or is he yeah. just... He's, he's lucid and identifies the car that struck him. Mm. So he's like hidden his car and... I don't know. I don't want to just reel off the plot. It's, it's just a lot more of a generic... That could be a real like Douglas Sirk film or something like that. But they basically develop a relationship founded on this like sort of mutual non-understanding um, but also like a sort of need... And ultimately, she finds satisfaction in her journey for uh, revenge <laughs> um, in quite a classic way. Yeah, it's entertaining, but it's like very like A to B in terms of the plotting. Mm. I don't know. That I've mentioned a few times these like big disclosures and like sort of turning points. Whereas this, it's like right from the beginning, it's almost like predetermined. The ending feels like sort of predetermined, like him being caught or, or sure. but maybe it shouldn't because like that's not you know if you're doing like a it's a film about the German car industry or whatever. Yeah, if you're doing a commentary on, like, you know, revenge against the Nazis, like, you know, that's not the conventional ending. I think we'll skip over it. I look forward to watching it when I can. Again, she doesn't say a lot in this film. And again, so much of it comes down to gesture. Um, Does she do a lot of walking away in this film? Do you see a lot of back of head? Because you certainly do in his later ones, I think. Um, which I guess is something he lifted from, like, Klee. Oh, it's that Gerhard Richter painting. And there's that um, one as well, That's yeah. like, a, that features in, in the, the sex scene. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, he obviously responds to these, um, you know, artists that are also trying to explore, like, alienation and, like, the body and stuff like that. Mm. The other one that really is about sort of, like, living history and about migration that I, you know, filmmaker I'm talking about, um, who also spends just a lot of time with like pretty intricate lighting setups um, is Pedro Costa, who also, you know, he remade I Walk With a Zombie early in his career and also is like obsessed with like John Ford and these sort of like big American directors or whatever. But um, th- I didn't really expect to find a point of comparison, even though I'm always looking for points of comparison with Pedro Costa. But yeah, just the amount of time you spend 
with like portraiture in the frame i'm talking like 20 30 seconds you're just looking at someone's face and they're not even listening to anything that's a pretty extreme element i think I wouldn't Especially describe, these films. Yeah, I, I wouldn't those. describe them as like sort of slow cinema. Though. No, 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 it's definitely not. not. Um, that sort of lingering, there's always like some sort of diegetic framing or logic for it, I think. Yeah. So I feel like I haven't really done Wolfsburg justice, but for me it was like, you know, it, it was a bit more of like a... Normal film. A normal film, potentially. All of them feel very much like just normal European films, though, I think. There's a lot going on both above the surface and beneath the surface, but... Mm. They don't look mad different to like. What I'll say is, if you like the sort of people in cars shot from the back seat, um, this is a film that establishes that as a trope in his films. Okay. Because like a lot of it is. You think that's some strobe? In this one, even though it's called Wolfsburg, like Wolfsburg is so peripheral mm-hmm. in the story, it's almost like negated by like the overbearing conventional drama of its story. Um, but again, like, I don't I feel like I'm doing it a disservice because if you're interested in, like, the way he treats, like, capitalism and labour, you know, this is a standard treatment that you'll find throughout the rest of his work. Great. Got a good title. Yeah. So we just say Nina Hoss plays a pretty different character in this film compared to Something to Remind Me or Barbara. For sure. While she's, like, extremely stoic, as I said, in in a lot of these performances and that's like you know a lot of it is sort of reduced to gesture mm. yeah she plays like a grieving mother in in um something to remind me you know she is motivated by i guess something similar but it's quite a different trajectory i guess she's i guess it's important to note she's like represented as like sort of like low wage worker um and you know <sighs> dear listener can you see we're taking on your comments on board about spoilers <laughs> Once she, yeah, it's so hard. It's so hard because I want to talk about. Well, these ones have actually interesting plots, but... trajectories, but like, I, you know, it's fine. I don't want to give it away. But yeah, she plays a complicated character and, you know, she brings a, a lot to it. But again, I feel like it's less intriguing potentially than some of the ones we're about to talk about. I don't know what it is about it. Maybe I'd just like watch them in the wrong order or something. If I watched it before one of the other ones, then... It's clearly something that he's interested in doing, though, with... It's the same, he said it about working with Paula Bear as well, where it's like, at one point, she might look like a completely different person or just have like a completely different like intensity going on or feel like she's from a completely different background or something like that. Mm. Or has a different past, again, playing into these sort of questions. And like, you know, she plays literally a, a zombie in Yellow. <laughs> Yeah, she's just definitely like pretty haunted in this one. Both well. a neoliberal zombie and a literal zombie. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, Yella is a sort of reimagining, a remake of the Carnival of Souls. Herc Harvey's soul feature shot in Salt Lake City, like a big American B movie. Big influence on David Lynch, Last Highway and stuff. Is that right? We wanted to watch it last Halloween. I feel like this is a story that we invoke quite a lot on the pod yeah so i'm not gonna let you motherfuckers forget it i don't know yeah you you might watch carnival souls it's fine (laughs) um but yeah haven't seen carnival souls no i guess we're like uh dave longstreth where he's like oh yeah it's a cover of damage but i haven't actually heard damage (laughs) yeah nina Hoss plays again like a completely different character in this one or a completely different sort of character nina Hoss plays yella which is an anagram of Layla, the name of her character from Something to Remind Me. 
she plays a woman who's living with her dad in East Germany, in like Wittenberg. And she's got a job interview in Hanover. And so she's going over to her job interview and she's like having a normal day. It's a bit of a stressful day. You know, this is a big thing about like people who migrate from East to West Germany or whatever in search of employment or like, you know, liberal capital or whatever, especially after the unification or whatever. And it being an imagined sort of different. It is a post-unification story, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, so she's going over the border to her job interview and she's she has a horrible ex-husband or whatever who she's, you know. Had like a failed business with. Yeah. Anyway, he turns up at her door and he's like, I'll take you to the job interview. And then he, well, I mean, he it's right. off a bridge. Yeah, it's right at the beginning of the film. Yeah, it's yeah. not really a spoiler. That is the premise of the film. Yeah. And then after that, she sort of crawls out of the lake and um, becomes like a committed, uh, like, sort of... She goes to work for this company where, like, her, she meets her boss in the parking lot and the boss isn't allowed to go into the building anymore. It's like a Jeremy at JLB yeah, exactly. uh, vibes. <laughs> like, she goes and then it's uh, it's closed. The, the same thing happens in um, The Sex Beef, I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, someone going to a nominal place of work which is abandoned yeah. and, like, someone's pushed a photocopy down the Selling the steps. filing cabinets and stuff. Yeah. <laughs> but this film still, you know, there's, there's some great quotes in this film, actually, I've got to say. Because this, this is the one that's really about offices and stuff. It's yeah, and, like, like, management consultancy. Yeah, if you, got to, if you got to die and come back, what would you do? Embezzle 200,000 euros from, like, a, a, a recruitment company. You know, network, software, inventory. This is the real, like, Eurozone aesthetic or whatever. Again, like, like Tony Erdman. So much of it takes place in meetings or like you haven't seen, you haven't seen the social network, but it's like they make that like boring to look at. But in this film, I'm captivated. I'm like, raw. Like, mm, mm. how's this meeting going to play out in succession or something? Yeah, well, for sure. I guess uh, this is like the real. Yeah, it's just extremely like continental. Like it reminds me of like um, Ruben Ostland or something. This sort sure. of stuff. We did already mention Petzal's like repurposing of real dialogue from his like documentaries about this like finance guy from Farocchi um, yeah, yeah. And, and dialogue from from these like sort of management consultancy scenes uh, where as I said they're basically trying to like fuck over these people are um yeah just like lifted from that uh which Especially is just for, crazy for a film that's made in 2007 like right before the financial crisis or whatever and so much of like that's almost a, a lost futures thing or whatever where it's like oh, they could have sorted this out or like not acted like this like bad behavior should just carry on with impunity or whatever so it's almost a crazier film to watch like yeah. after that and after brexit or whatever you know? yeah yeah it is like so historically specific just in terms of like thinking about this depiction of like neoliberalism and like the body as well i think something that's like recurrent throughout a lot of these films is yeah just like the way like the co- what like the costuming like sort of codes um, and in this film, so yeah, good in this film, man. She, yeah, for sure. The costume is like very sort of, you know, her like pivot to management culture or you know whatever you want to call it yeah, is like yeah, very her like apprentice out like the apprentice. Yeah, outfit. exactly. Or something um, like that. Compared to like the wavy garms moment in the state I'm in, where like you got the Diego Maradona like. <laughs> type print yeah uh, you know yeah 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 and then the big like adidas like shell suit she's like oh no one's gonna want to look at me in this i look yeah. disgusting or whatever and it's like you look like a fucking instagram account like, but in this yeah it's clearly like such a deliberate thing in a almost like a nicholas ray sense absolutely the red shirt for sure yeah. <laughs> another thing there's a you know i feel like you sort of like take the piss out of his use of music quite a lot 
Um, and, you know, there's quite like a hammy use of, uh, I think it's like Moonlight Sonata in Yellow, where it's just, you know, at least it's like... I'm just glad it wasn't the Monster Mash or something. <laughs> it could have been. It could, he yeah. wouldn't, he would have done it. You know? It would have been jokes, to be fair. Um, Yellow is a really beguiling film, though, yeah. and it has a really interesting structure. Obviously, all these like very rich themes, but um, it's just really jokes. Um, and again, like, it is a sort of like, spectral film you know um not to give anything away but you know compare it to like something like goodbye dragon inn or like um a ghost story or whatever which they make that thing that like tension way more on the surface or whatever but this i think the fact that it's such a professionalized film it's not about a romance or it's not about like leisure it's about like work and it has that sort of very godardian like presence of cash like running down or whatever and taking on this sort of ghostly oh, yeah. quality as well you know that's a film that's going to age really well i think and become very very historical when we look back at it in 20 years time or something like that well for sure as you said it's so hard to uh, detach it from its uh context in like world historical events the financial crash and like you know it's you're right um and yeah just again on the like a style i guess we're talking so much about like these these themes in the films that like i don't want to negate the fact that like they are like really entertaining like genre films yes yeah. well, um, there's plenty to look at even if the, that is the back of someone's head for a while but the, yeah the storytelling is fucking great now we're going to talk about jericho which is one of the ones that's available on movie mm. um it's a remake of or it's like one of several adaptations of james n kane's the Postman always rings twice. We watched Bob Ray Fulson's one with Jack Nicholson and Jessica Lange from 1980 for Film Club quite early on, about a year ago. We both hated it. This film, however, is fucking sick. Um, I haven't seen Visconti's Ossessione, but oh, it maybe... It sounded quite interesting yeah. from the descriptions I read of it, though. Definitely. Petzold talks about how he sees The Postman always rings twice, you know, set in America, but, like, story about immigration or whatever, and it's about, you know they're trying to screw over like the old greek dude who has a sort of like kept woman wife or whatever it's about a guy who has massive gambling debts and like he's trying to restore his like childhood home in east germany the former east yeah the former yeah and then he gets like beaten up and you know he basically meets this dude by the side of the road who's he has his driving license takeaway he's the food supplier for a bunch of like turkish like snack bars all over this sort of very towns based like very German uh, yeah, landscape. Yeah, Jericho is a fictional town, but it's like a very like sort of standard, you know, provincial. You're on the motorway pretty much this whole film anyway, or exactly. whatever, as with all of his other films. Or at the beach, or at like a cabin in the woods where they where they live and have like their... The ideal German home. Yeah, wow. exactly. But yeah, so he works for this dude, Ali, who's like a Turkish guy who's married to... A whole new Sosa. Right. Um, Great performance. Yeah, really. So, yeah, 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 we'll we'll get to yeah, yeah. as yeah. Sorry, as I said, he's married to um, Nina Hoss's Laura, and yeah, the, the guy is played by uh, Benno Furman, who's the the guy that kills the kid in Wolfsburg. So it's their second sort of pairing, um, which yeah, again is like a classic Petzold sort of thing, like reimagining these like character dynamics using the same actors. But yeah, the way it engages with its source material is so different, like. As you said, I really didn't like um, the adaptation of The Postman Always Rings Twice that we watched for Film Club. A film that, like, really, I don't know, 
it just had like a sort of I thought it was soul rubbish, man. In like, yeah, I don't know. It, in every way. I watched Head the other day, also by Rafelson with Nicholson in it, which I loved. That was crazy. Which one? Head, the monkey's film. Oh, yeah. Um, I think my issue with it was that it's sort of marketed as a noir, and it, the story is noirish, but that production is just like really like oversaturated and like sensuous, and it's just like, it feels like it like privileges like the deadest aspects of the story. Whereas the Petzold interpretation explores the power relations between this like emigre Turkish businessman, his German wife and this like German like sort of stranger. Oh, he's an Afghanistan vet as well. He didn't even say. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. But yeah, it's just completely different treatment, a a different um, outcome as well. So interesting, this film. Definitely one of the ones where the editing and the cinematography and the acting was like on 10 throughout and the casting i guess he he's talked about how this was quite inspired by like um ali theory's the soul and merchant of four seasons those fastbender films but this film i mean it's it so deep that's exactly it like in the version that we saw for film club no um i felt nothing yeah i felt nothing exactly um whereas in this one like the empathy or the pathos for um ali they're all like complicated. For all three of the characters. They're all really, extremely like... complicated characters that like, you know, the way they're crafted and framed and like, it's just, it's has... just a really, imp- yeah, it's really dread. And again, it has all that labor stuff, you know, that, that bit where he's goes to do the like sort of examination, see if the guy is going to give him a receipt or like the sort of fight scene that takes place in like a stock room. Like these sort of things are so memorable. Some of the best scenes in, this whole filmography that I've seen. But the whole thing. And the ending was, again, jaw-dropping. I was close to tears, to be honest. Even though the style is so... Again, it's not minimal. It's not maximal. It's like somewhere in... Well, it's just normal, I guess. But like it's both, you know. There's just one quote that I just remembered about like how... Sorry, it's a bit tangential, but just about how he frames things. Um, and this is from one of his interviews from... I think it's actually around the time that Jericho was made um, or when it was coming out. Um, I think it was in Cineast. And he says, he's talking about Halloween. Um, oh, the, yeah, the that's right. Film. Yeah. Um, and he's saying how, like, the reason he loves it is, like, the camera, it sort of shifts, like, between subjectivity and objectivity, right? Sometimes you're with Michael Myers, other times you're just watching him walk. Yeah, but, or you feel like you're with him, but then he walks into frame, mm-hmm. stuff like that, right? Mm-hmm. So there's always this... I guess that's why Ruben Ostland comes to mind as well, because there's like a slightly voyeuristic quality to this work. It's not, you're right, it's like not minimal. It's You wouldn't necessarily describe it as minimalistic, but I, don't know, I guess that's why like Bresson is like a... It's quiet. Yeah, I think Jericho is a real standout for both of us as we talk about it, that, and we find ourselves like sort of slightly at a loss for words to describe to describe what we liked about it like, there's so much to say about it man but it's just a, con- a concrete success like on every level i think and an interesting like filmmaking project mm. i mean certainly his foremost film that explores like immigration um the fact that the guy has to like he goes away for a few days but he doesn't get on a plane but that's like the same way that like Loads of Cuba Libre takes place in an airport, but like no one gets on planes in his films ever. Like that is a leap too far with the sort of traveling thing going on in his films. That's the thing. Travel is like always such a, or transit. Yeah. Transit is always such a central theme. Um, But here, the way that's specifically linked to identity and like, you know, Europe is, 
extremely well done. And yeah, I guess his only ethnic in like a yeah. quote marks. I guess he got like transit with like you know that was set Certain in Marseille. Woman, yeah. um, but it's a a really interesting like aspect of his treatment of modern Germany, neoliberalism, capitalism, identity, all this stuff, and like the myth of mobility. And you know, again, like debt is like such an important aspects of this film of course uh, that's the on the the real eternal that's the real thing that comes to define all the characters in most of his films actually it's like how much money they owe to other people or whatever this film though is definitely i guess a real archetypal tragedy in a way that the original isn't and in a way that like a lot of his other films aren't either really it also has the best tunes. devastating film Um, the turkish music in this in this film great that's the one that i would just say Dear Film Grey's listener, like, watch Jericho, like, it will succeed for you. I think it's a masterpiece. And I love that whenever we do these sorts of episodes, there's always, like, three of those when we actually look at a full filmography. seen the police tv film fuck the cops but the last two films that he made as a collaboration with nina hoss are on another level for his filmmaking and also just as films this is barbara from 2011 and phoenix from 2015 that we're talking about yeah i think they're really something special they're both historical films which is quite um rare for him when they seem to sort of take place in the present well sure until up to when everyone wrote their neat theses about Christian Petzold. Yeah, exactly. They're all scrambling to be like, how do we account for the Petzoldian turn to historical mise-en-scene? Where it's like, you know, if the thesis has been they bridged the past and the present, or they bridged the past to the present, or the present to the past, or however it's configured. When we say Barbara is set in East Germany, I don't need to say reunified (laughs) East Germany. Like, it's properly about the experience of living in East Germany. He said numerous times that like, he wanted to make a colourful film about East Germany, I guess in response to the unsurprisingly huge hit in the West, The Lives of Others, made by Florio Henkel von Donnersmark, a literal count, trying to show about how miserable, how drab East Germany was and how you know people had to lie to let art flourish and stuff like that. Obviously a huge hit. Barbara was nominated for Oscar for Best Foreign Language Film, but didn't catch on in quite the same way, but it is a major film for that. Um, and he says, like, I guess because he grew up, he was literally like 10 years old at this time or whatever. So he remembers it as a very vivid and colourful time, like living in East Germany. And this film has an interesting ending, not the ending that you might expect to find in something like a film made by Florian Henkel von Donnersmark. Well, for sure. I mean, it's about the central tension between Barbara's sense of like pastoral care as a doctor and her sort of flirtation with the allure of the West and consumerism Mm. and you know it dramatizes that dialectic in like a really sublime way almost definitely there's a sort of suggestion of romance with the man who's like employed to spy on her 
for the state or whatever, who's the other doctor in the sort of institution that she works in. Yeah, this is um, Ronald Zerfeld, who also plays her romantic partner in Phoenix from yeah, a couple of years later. I'd say it's more than a suggestion. It is about the formation yes. of their like romantic relationship. At odds with like her ex-partner who lives in the West, who they're meeting up with in the forest to like... Give her stockings and cigarettes. cigarettes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Have a kiss. But it takes place in that space, like on the border. But it's not in a very like fetishized way or whatever. It takes place like definitely in the world of like a film that is like very fully formed and really makes a lot of sense on its own terms. Yeah, the way it represents um, having to go through the border is mad actually because the potential escape route from East Germany is to like go on like a raft like into, what even is it? To like, they have to go up to Denmark or so. Is there a line yeah, yeah. of dialogue like that? It's crazy. Um, whereas like these like, you know, Western businessmen in cars can apparently like, you know, it's way more like transactional, like they can just like drive in because it's like, you know, for business or whatever, yeah. rather than as like a refugee, which is like seen as like a very different form of like mobility in this film. Such an amazing film, actually. I, I This was one of the first ones I saw like a few years ago, and it was a real pleasure to rewatch. Um, I guess one of the like central like images from it is her like riding her bicycle, which is... I guess such like a strong metaphor for like her agency and especially in relation to the use of cars in these films as like spaces where like you're either in the driving seat or not. It's a really, it's a good historical drama. Like it's hard to talk about, I guess. It has probably my favourite scene in the Christian Petzold filmography where they're looking at this Rembrandt painting. He said like, he doesn't want to make any more historical films because they just continuity and like budgets are so much you have to pay for so much more or whatever including like licensing this rembrandt painting but the discussion they have about it and i mean it's a bit like a peter greenaway film or something like that but it's very cohesive it's the autopsy of a thief or whatever but uh, anatomy lesson of um dr, dr. nicholas Toop. great painting but i mean the interpretation they have of the painting in the scene where they're looking at the textbook and the anatomical feature of the textbook is put on the guy's hand as opposed to like them actually doing their work and doing their autopsy. It ties into the, you know, yeah. the Hitchcockian elements of his filmmaking in such an interesting way. Yeah, like you say that, but in um, Phoenix, they have like the little Paul Klee Angel of History print as well, like a few years later. Looking away but, from the yeah. viewer or whatever. But I mean, I love these moments. I saw Ivan's Childhood in the cinema the other day and it has that Jura moment that... Ekphrasis, I believe. Is yeah. Right. Oh, God. Apparently, this act of ekphrasis, mm -hmm. uh, the description of the anatomy lesson, is from a Siebold novel. The Rings of Saturn, which I actually picked up on the street just the other day. Saw it outside someone's house. Amazing. Yeah. Um, oh, yeah, I'm actually really down to get involved. I've His stories are a lot about refugees and yeah. like the Holocaust. I looked well. at a little bit of one of them. Well, I can't remember what it was called, but... Um, it had like a crazy structure and it, it like incorporated like photographs mm. that he um, recontextualizes using prose um, about like the migratory experience. Um, but yeah, that's an amazing scene. He really goes whole hog, you know, he's not fucking around. Like if he wants to put a scene like that in his film and actually tie it into like you've been watching the same actress, like play all these different roles for like 10 years and like he's shaped her screen persona or they've shaped it together and they're still getting new stuff out of it. And they certainly will in 
the next film we're going to talk about phoenix or whatever which is a real even more mad than like blonde venus or whatever it's just like probably her most, everything that yeah. you would expect from seeing all these nina Hoss films that you've already seen definitely her most dramatic transformation as a screen persona and like a model yeah for <laughs> pets old i guess um to use the the breton term um breton never use the same actor do you want to talk <laughs> Yeah, and you know, she's no amateur for sure. Um, should we just hop straight into Phoenix? Yeah, I'm just going to crack this beer while we talk about this fucking masterpiece that I only saw yesterday for the first time. Oh. I can't believe yeah. I hadn't seen it. This was the first one I saw, Phoenix, from, as I said, 2015, and his final collaboration with Nina Hoss to date. She plays Nelly, a German-Jewish singer who has been like disfigured in a concentration camp, and we first meet her, like, eyes without a face style bandaged being like brought back into Berlin she's sort of rehabilitated um by like her one surviving friend like seems like ever all her family have like died and her friend is telling her this and she just wants to find her husband Johnny again played by Ron Zerfeld and yeah so the premise is he wants her to pretend to be his wife because she he doesn't really recognize her because she's had the to have, years like, she's lived in the last year or whatever. Yeah, because she just like moves slightly differently and has had um, reconstructive surgery on her face, even though she says to the doctor, "Oh, I want to look the same." So that's the premise. He's like sort of training her to be to, to, to appear as his wife, so he can get her inheritance. It's crazy uh, because there's a bit in Gravity's Rainbow where he's trying to like sell this rock of hash that was like left behind by like someone who died in at the end of the war or whatever but it's all about this like how much money there was to be made off just like the accounts that hadn't been like the scramble to settle people's accounts like in the wake of world war Two and how much money there was going around in berlin or whatever the fact that this dude doesn't recognize his own fucking wife and he's like pulling this like vertigo thing where he's like putting the dress on her putting the wig on her to make her look like her old self and he doesn't know that it is actually her at least one of the great endings in like modern film i think but like, it's got so much to say about, if you compare it to like the Rossellini film, just visualizing this like post-World War Two. I mean, Petzold has been like, it's not a rubble film, right. uh, but like quite a lot of it is like set literally in rubble. Um, maybe it's a semantic point because like they responded on like a, in the first instance, like literally using them. But yeah, you're right. The ending is just, really quite breathtaking and i guess one thing in people trying to like comprehend like what is he doing by like turning to the historical film like what is the sort of generic framework that he's reimagining and like the answer that is positive usually is like melodrama um something also cited in relation to like some of the other films like Wolfsburg, which is like as i said so like prosaic but like i guess that is it like you know it's like a growing, you know, like an amping up of like, mm. you know, dramatic, like, yeah, and like, but quite like effective, yeah. um, emotional, like sort of narrativizing, and yeah, in Phoenix, it's just a remarkable ending. And it's not the only thing. Like this film works on like every level, and there's so much going on in it. I think it's a bit like the previous episode of Film Grays, where it's like we were speculating as to like how many of this group of people or who turned out to be a Nazi or whatever. And in this, you're like, you're forced to just see the same people and they're just like carrying on with their lives or whatever straight after the war. And it, 
she wants to move to Palestine and it's like she doesn't want to people keep saying to her That's when it, yeah, are you yeah, yeah, yeah. when are you moving to, move Palestine? to Palestine yeah, 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 yeah. like the German housekeeper is like oh you survived the camps mm-hmm. also when are you moving to Palestine that's the extent of uh, reintegration, you know, it's like, um, but she doesn't want to, she's like, I think there's even a line where she's like, I'm not a Jew, because she's like, not looking for some sort of, you know, that's meant to be her home, basically. So she doesn't need to, you know, try and carve out a new one. But, but it's again, that sort of liminal existence that like Christian Petzold is like constantly dramatizing, but in like this actual historical film, it's so different, I think. Because it takes place in such a specific moment. The sort of one big interpretation I had of it or whatever is this sort of like arguing Germany to be as like masochistic as like the main character is or whatever, where Mm. she's like forced to like relive her trauma or whatever. Well, yeah, that's the thing. Another major plot point is like the whole time she's unsure as to whether he sold her out in the first place. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, And it's that like sort of dual sort of self-replication and search for discovery that is like characterizes her journey through the film and i can understand why it would be his last heretofore collaboration with Hoss because i don't know really where they could go after this when they've had so many different characters told so many different stories franco-prussian war <sighs> let's see it no he'd hate that he'd hate that what what blondie song is he going to use in that to tell that story or whatever? <laughs> No, I mean, especially like considering the decision made at the end of Barbara compared to the one made at the end of this film or whatever. There's just so much that they convey, so many different stories they tell that are all about Germany and about Germany's relationship with itself. As you said, something with like the the game of like who's the Nazi, mm-hmm. um, they convey that in a really interesting way with like photographs where like they'll like circle the Nazis' faces mm-hmm. and she'll be like looking at an old photograph. And it's like, oh, you know, the cro- someone's telling her, oh, the crosses mean... Well, she's, like, using this as, like, a device to, like, like learn about her role. But, like, really, she's just, like, looking at these, like, photographs of her and her friends. And, like, the, yeah, the, like, Nazis, like, circled and there were, like, crosses where the dead. Um, and, like, in one of them, there's, like, her cross has been, like, rubbed out. Yeah, that's right. And her friend is like, oh, like, it's a miracle you survived. It's so... Um, I guess it's not especially subtle compared to like how you know the past is excavated in his other work like it's the sort of thing where like he'd say before like oh I'll never make a one like I'll never make something with like people in SS uniforms running around when it's like you know, I guess it doesn't really happen in things of like the post war. You know, it's like just after the war. Yeah, but, it's just the American yeah. military police were uh, being like shitheads or whatever. In this oh, yeah. Some great music in this. Lots of different versions and interpretations of Kurt Weill's, um Speak Low. Speak Low, yeah. You seem um, to hear another version, I'm very sure. Yeah, this, absolutely. This um, but yeah, a really well-scored film. And one thing that I really want to make sure <laughs> we talk about is the reference to Frau and Mond. Women. Oh yeah, they invented the countdown. Yeah, so at, at the beginning when she's getting her um, surgery, uh, the doctor's like, you know what the Americans call it, countdown. <laughs> and he's like, yeah, they got it from Fritz Lang's Frau im Mond, um, which I which we watched together and I had no idea. That's that. such an that interesting sort of genealogy for what seems like a timeless concept that yeah. is actually inherently linked to the idea of like travel. 
and cultural industries in World War Two. Let's talk about Transit for a few minutes before we wrap this up, just because it is a truly remarkable film and we're a bit remiss for not lining it out. This is the one that I would say every one of you listening has to watch. Like, <laughs> I feel like we've said it. that about a few. No, but this is definitely, definitely the fucking one. It would have been my favourite film of 2019 if I'd seen it in that year. And it's even more than uh, Sunset by... Laszlo Nemesh. By, yeah, Nemesh Laszlo. Um, <laughs> just an d- extremely powerful historical film. Mm, mm. For sure. I guess, like, this is him going beyond the, like, sort of conventional parameters of the um, historical drama or, like, the period film that, like, you know, is so open to criticism on, like, ideological and aesthetic grounds um, that, like, maybe he subverts a little bit in Phoenix and Barbara, but Mm. in transit, like, it is, like, an extremely intelligent engagement with its historical source material and, like, the perfect bridging of that and, like, present political situations. Um, just to, to bridge our like sort of discussion of his work with Nina Hoss, mm. um, with this, you know, she's not in it after like so many years working together, and then some. I think you might have told me that someone was like, "Oh, is oh, is Paula Bear your your new muse?" Mm. And they said, "Oh no, it's uh, Franz Rogowski." Right. <laughs> um, and yeah, Franz Rogowski is the main character in in transit he wasn't getting any like big leading roles or whatever he was just like a he was a trained dancer well he's a fascinating performer he has a very idiosyncratic voice i think you compared it to peter laurie um but after i did a probably quite insensitive impersonation of it but yeah endearing is the word but so much like right now in transit you know you just get some the sounds of the streets modern streets that are um interrupting your historical pageantry yeah well it, that's exactly it um it is interesting as an adaptation it's um as i said the book transit was written in i think 40 or published in 44 i think like during the war it's by anna Sigurds. yeah like a influential east german writer um very similar sort of plots are like casablanca i guess so yeah um but I've, I've read a little bit of it and like some of the narration from it is um, lifted and sort of transposed from the first person to the third person. And Transit does have like a, quite an interesting narrational device. I love the narration in this. Yeah. I thought it was great, but yeah, apparently Faroki would never let him do it. I compared it to the big Lebowski when I first saw it. Well, for sure, because like, you know, the voiceless narrator... Um, is embodied by by the end. And, He's just one know. of these people in these cafes or like one of these people who has to wait, go to the same fucking place every day and wait for your exit visa and have that meeting that doesn't go anywhere. And that's a big part of the experience of the film, far more than the lost romance element of this film. Yeah, which... I mean, that's an extremely marginal aspect of it, but does just relate to like the complication of escape. And the Kafkaness of it. Well, yeah, exactly. You know? yeah. There's none of that in Casablanca, even though it does arrive at the same ending and the sort of grace moment or whatever transit is a remarkable remarkable film when i saw it i really wanted to do an episode on christian petzold and i thought watching all of his films pretty much and like reading loads of interviews with him and i say this at the end of every every one of these we do but like this guy knows what he's talking about even if his latest film was maybe a bit of a misstep but i mean like he is so deliberate as like one of the main people from like something that seemed like quite a non-style that is actually just has endless amounts of detail and like richness to mine despite looking the way they look the way he shoots people and the way he tells stories 
not the way he uses music. So I think that's still pretty whack to be honest. But everything else, like this guy's a fucking G, and he's like he's great at talking about other films as well, mm. and he's great at saying yeah at the end of every sentence. <laughs> yeah, as I alluded to, he is um, you know he analyzes American films in like quite a jokes way. Um, if you look at interviews with him, The Last Picture Show, Halloween. Charlie's Angels, Full Throttle. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I can only agree, though. I think it's been a real treat to delve deeper, having really enjoyed Barbara, Phoenix in Transit a few years ago. So, like, you know, I think these early works in particular oh. are, like, really rewarding, but a really rich filmography, and, you know, I look forward to seeing. Part two of the Fairy Tales trilogy. <laughs> I'm looking forward to seeing more Franz Rogowski. Sam, always a pleasure. Thanks for listening, and... Maybe by the time we get this out, our Patreon would have started. In which case, you can hear us talking about such classic films as Johnny Guitar and La Commune, both films I kind of meant to bring up on this episode, but <laughs> they didn't quite didn't quite make it in. Definitely Watkins is comparable to Petzold in the way they collapse time or whatever, and mm. forces reckon with the way that we think and use images these days in a historical context. Especially in transit, I guess. But yeah, we're talking about those for a small fee. If you've enjoyed what we've done so far and want to hear more of us and want to request some films for us to talk about. Um, we're watching A Taste of Cherry tonight for Film Club, although we definitely won't get this episode out in two hours. But <laughs> still, I'm really looking forward to that. Thank you, Jules, for programming it. Um, and we'll be back soon with uh, Louis Bennett. Mm. Great painter. Yeah, Another great artist of our time. And we're going to talk about we're going to continue to talk about painters. I've been Emmett. I'm Sam. Lots of love. We're on the road to nowhere. Come on inside. Taking the ride to nowhere. We'll take the ride. Feeling okay this morning. And you know. We're on the road to paradise. Here we go. Here we go.